Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Lucy Hounsom. 95 years after it was first published, the copyright on The Great Gatsby has expired. This great American novel has sold over 25 million copies since it was first published, despite initially disappointing sales. It's hard to believe now that with its cultural pervasiveness that F. Scott Fitzgerald died thinking he was a failure and that his works were all but forgotten. The Great Gatsby is an undisputed classic and its entry into the public domain immediately saw a raft of interpretations and retellings. But the one at the top of Breaking the Glass Slippers to read list was immediately The Chosen and the Beautiful by Nevo, a queer Asian retelling from the point of view of Vietnamese adoptee Jordan Baker. I mean, come on, amazing. So Vo's novel doesn't disappoint. But it occurred to us that tackling such a beloved classic must be a daunting and somewhat perilous task. So we thought we would invite the author on the show to talk about how she went about tackling one of the classics. So, Ni, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Uh, sure. Uh, my name is Nevo. I wrote The Chosen and the Beautiful. Uh, I also wrote um, the Singing Hills uh, series. I'm Super excited to be here today. Thank you for having me. Well, we are big fans of your novellas as well. Um, <laughs> Lucy will agree. Big there. fan, big fan. <laughs> Empress of Salt and Fortune is amazing. I love it so it much. It was so much fun to write. I'm so glad people had fun reading it. Oh, I just think it's amazing. I'm looking at it on my shelf right now, and I got the second one, and I was like, right, I've got it. It's lined up, and then like loads of other books came, and I was like, no, no, but I need to find, I need to find time to read it because I just they're think so it's little. Like, it's okay. They're very. Fast. It, it's so little. I know, and this is what's so good about it. It's just, a, it's like, how did you? And this is massively off topic, but I don't know how you managed to get something so epic feeling into such a small number of pages i just think wow i'm just an incredibly lazy writer and if i just can (laughs) squeeze it down to twenty thousand words i'm done well yeah it was great and i i think more novellas we love novellas okay so getting us back on topic on topic (laughs) so what made you want to reimagine one of the great american novels um, well, um, speaking fairly, I've had something like The Chosen and the Beautiful in my mind for a very long time. Um, I read it in high school. It was assigned reading like it is for so many American students. And for me, it was just looking at the time, I didn't quite understand why I wanted to build on it so much. But then as I got older, I can see that there's just so many spaces that are left open in even in something so compact. So there's a lot of spaces to spin out and that's kind of where it started in me wanting to do it. Um, why I did it was because um, I was in the middle of writing another novel. I haphazardly mentioned this idea to my agent and she said, stop writing that novel and write this one instead. And I'm like, okay, I'm pretty easy going. <laughs> so in other words, an agent and publisher's dream. <laughs> <laughs> I don't miss deadlines either. Oh, okay. Yes. You, you are the dream. <laughs> I mean, I I know what you mean about The Great Gatsby having spaces left open because it, while it is this kind of 
scathing commentary about the the excess that was around at the time it also it seems to say so much while at the same time saying very little i don't know how he did it <laughs> oh it's i think that one of the the coolest things about fitzgerald as a writer is he puts so much trust and faith into his readers being of the world that he is also living in um there is so like when I started digging into it, there's so many interesting and weird details that would have been very obvious to a 1920s audience and then becomes much more elusive once you're, you know, in the 21st century and suddenly everything becomes a lot more, a lot more, um, it becomes something where we can paint ourselves in, we can paint in our own world and, uh, and it doesn't feel inappropriate. It feels like we have plenty of space to do that. There's just also, I think, even when you look at, you know, the Baz Luhrmann film version, I think it really spoke to that, just how he used the the modern soundtrack. And it just didn't feel at all out of place because there was that ability for us to put ourselves into that world. Yeah, plenty of room to make some real bad decisions. <laughs> I mean, yes, I, I do that daily. <laughs> oh, yeah, every single day, every single way. So... I'm interested as someone who's not actually read The Great Gatsby, but has read and really liked your book. When you come to introducing reinterpreted aspects, how much did you feel you could play with the original novel? Was there some bits that you went, you know what, this is crucial to The Great Gatsby story? Or was it pretty much a free for all and you just went, you know what, I'm going to throw it all up in the air and see what comes down? Uh, I'm... um... I, w- I got pretty reckless with it, I think, is uh, the best word for it. Um, I felt that given the fact that, you know, it is basically when, um, you know, the copyright expired, it felt like it felt very much like open season. And, you know, we've already seen lots of other interpretations or tons that I'm super excited about. And because I realized that I only had about, you know, I, I gave myself a, a this was written in about four months. So, you know, I had to, I had to work very fast. And in the back of my head, I was just thinking, man, when's the next ch- time I'm going to get a chance to do this? So I just threw it all in. I threw it in about as hard and as fast as I could. I gave it a really good mix. Um, but once again, part of it is just the space that we're given in the original novel as well. There, There's, um, I mean, I think most famously we have uh, the lever scene. Uh, if you guys know what I'm talking about. The lever scene. Okay, so um, in terms of space in the book, um, the one that comes up for a lot of people is the infamous Lever scene. Nick is at a party. He is talking with an artist by the name of Mr. McKee. And then for some reason, they leave the party together. It's very unclear why they do so. You have a kind of a brief cut. And um, the next thing you know, Nick is standing by the bed Mr. McKee is undressed and showing him his portfolio. And um, it's called the lever scene because in the elevator up in the elevator up to McKee's apartment, the um, the uh, elevator operator asks him to keep his hands off the lever. And for someone who writes as tightly as Fitzgerald does, there's this big question of why would you put this scene in? And there's lots of interpretations. The first and most obvious one is, um, is, is a queer reading, of course. But when you have that much space to play with, why wouldn't you? Especially if, if I'm going to do this at all, I might as well do it loudly. You say that you were pretty reckless about the original, but I don't know. Having... <laughs> Having read the book, I, it still feels very true, despite you know the 
demoniac and the or how I don't know how you would pronounce it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, and the the magic and and the the very weirdness and you know changing Jordan's backstory. It it, it still managed to. F- it feels very Gatsby. So I I don't feel like you were that reckless with it. <laughs> Well, that's that's a good okay. So the way I would think of it is, um, I feel like I'm taking plenty of liberties given the fact that now there are actual demons running around New York City. Uh, Jordan is Jordan is is uh, Vietnamese American, uh, but if I was going to do this in the first place, I have to do it from a place of love for the original work, even if it makes me very angry. It is still a work I love very much. So um, if I wasn't going to if I wasn't going to have that kind of faithfulness it would have felt kind of strange for me to do in the first place and I should have just done something original, but yeah, no, I see what you mean. That makes sense. Nee, I'm really curious. You said that it took you four, was it four weeks or four months to write? Four months. Four months. months. What was the time pressure on that? Was it your own wanting to do it quickly? Was it because the copyright came out and you went, you know what, I want to be the first here or did it just (laughs) flow or, or what? Uh, Because that's an astounding turnaround time. Uh, well, okay, so the way it happened was I, that thing I told you about uh, me talking with Diana. What the thing happened, and um, I think I was okay. The problem was I wasn't sleeping a lot at the time. Like it wasn't like I had stopped sleeping, but I was doing it a lot less than I should have. So I told her, and it's like, and she's like, "Can you write that?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I can do it by the, by the end of the year." And um, then somehow that got kind of switched around in my head. So I thought I had like a lot less time than I did. And then my sister got married. And um, then I had like two or three other jobs come due. And basically I did about a month's worth of uh, reading and research both into the era, into Fitzgerald himself. And then I'm like, okay, well, there's only four months left. I guess I better take care of that. So it was an entirely artificial pressure, but it felt very real. Does that kind of answer the question? Is that about what you're looking for? Yeah, yeah, no, totally. It was just, it was just, I was just so curious as someone who obviously deals with editing and writing books and seeing all the different turnaround times. And I was like, that's, that's some dedication that is. <laughs> I, I wrote part of it in a, in a diner in a casino in my, in one of my first adult trips to Las Vegas. It was great. It felt about right. As someone who also is into the whole writing of books thing, I'm really mm. interested in, um, how you because I mean like my only experience with reinterpretation and reimagining is is like literally taking a folk ballad and and re re like jigging it into a novel but your oh. your source material is actually a novel and it's a really famous novel at that so I just wondered um considering you wrote it in such a short amount of time how much planning did you need to do do you you've obviously got original projects written as well um mm-hmm. did you feel like the novellas needed less or more planning than than the new Gatsby novel um I think I'm a disappointment to a lot of people who are curious about how I do what I do because mostly I just look at it in terms of word count. My whole, I mean, I would have been writing uh, novels, I think, much sooner if I'd actually understood that, you know, 5,000 plus 5,000 eventually gets you 80,000 or 100,000. Um, the reason why I started writing novellas is because um, I realized that they were only 20,000 words long. Um, and then the nice thing about uh, doing basically the fanfic of what I have of um, with Chosen the Beautiful, I am following a roadmap that uh, Fitzgerald has left me in the original novel. And, it, you know, I follow that, as you pointed out earlier, I followed it uh, very closely. So that was kind of a relief. It, it's, it is as long as it needs to be. 
I have a lot of trouble making word count actually, but I'm like, but I'm done now. Right. I'm done. Well, I think it's good to be honest. I mean, okay. As I love fantasy and sci-fi and yes, I read lots of books that are, you know, that could kill someone if they fell on you, but I really like a beautifully concise book that gives you all of that emotion and everything in it, but it doesn't need to be, you know, a doorstop. There's a certain level of accessibility that, you know, this is a bit uh, belated in my, in my own career, but I really like the idea of not forcing people to invest, um, invest in, you know, four or five fantasy bricks before we get to whatever I considered the payoff to be. Uh, That's why all of the singing Hills novellas are always going to be standalone. I mean, it'll be more fun if you read them all together, but they're definitely standalone. And where there will be a few connections between The Chosen and The Beautiful and Siren Queen, which is my novel coming up next year, um, you don't have to read them to read the other. You can just, you know, pick up a book, sit sit with me for a bit, and and then move on if, you know, whatever you like. Okay, so The Great Gatsby obviously tackles a lot of the the hedonism and the, you know, the so-called, in, you know, inverted commas, immoral behaviour that Fitzgerald talks about in the original novel, you know, the the flappers and, and women starting to own their sexuality and have premarital sex and do all these terrible, terrible things. But you have taken it to another level. So these people haven't just figuratively sold their souls to the devil. They have done so literally. So... I mean, is this one of those ideas that you came to and said, okay, I have this idea instead of Gatsby just being kind of morally bankrupt, he's going to be literally have sold his de- his soul to the devil. Or, you know, was that something that came out more naturally? I mean, how, how did you come to change that quite fundamental aspect of it? Uh, here's this, here, there's this fun part. I don't think I did. Um, okay. So we have the 1920s and, uh, there's lots and lots of really cool books out there about this fundamental change in American culture. We are entering a time of both material prosperity and a certain tactile reality that we've never had before. Suddenly people are owning things in a way they've never had before. Like the amount of things that are owned by people in the 1920s and the amount of things that are owned by people just even 10 or 20 years before that is immense. Um, Everything has this touchable quality. Everything is newly luxurious. We're, thanks to the advent of advertising, everyone was given um, a view of what they can have. And so if there's any theme of the 1920s, it is both wealth and the illusion of wealth. And when we come, when we start talking about selling their souls, I think that, I mean, we always have. That's, we, you know, that's, that's what people do. It's kind of what makes, our, makes us human. It just depends on what we sell our souls to. So actually, I don't think I change very much at all. Um, there is, you know, it's the idea that things, that things and people are for sale. Our emotions are for sale. Our souls are for sale. And so we just have to work on who we're selling them to. You're talking about using the setting and sort of thinking that it was quite well linked already to selling your soul to the devil and everything that was going on. You put in a load of extra stuff like the Manchester Act and all of the the bootlegging and the, how did Megan say it? Demoniac, was it? The drink Uh, anyway. Ah, demoniac. There we go. Mm. And I just kind of wondered how much you 
built into the world? Was it kind of a case you really sat down and thought about it? Or was it a case you just kind of threw it in higgledy-piggledy? Because I wondered if you really planned it, whether maybe you could come up with another reinterpretation or even a brand new unique novel. Because to me, it felt like you'd put in an awful lot of work in all the background stuff and all the politics and, and all the segregation and everything. It felt like you'd really created a brand new world that slipped in nicely to reality. Uh, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that came through. Um, I, I do do a fair amount of world building, but I don't do it with any, with any sort of underlying core of logic because I don't feel that the real world is like that. The real world is full of contradictions. It is full of people doing things that act against their best interest. It is full of people um, acting in ways that, you know, uh, that they really shouldn't be acting and we don't find out about it until many years later. And I think it was that chaos that you're reading that you can see in The Chosen and the Beautiful. There is, it's just, everything is so mashed together. And while there, there are indisputable facts in the world, people just bend themselves around it. Um, the fun part about world building for this novel is that from the beginning, I knew that Jordan had to have a complete world for her to bounce off of. Because Jordan is a character who does not think systematically unless she has to. Um, as she puts it at one point, uh, she holds up her, her planner and says, I'm sorry, I can't see two weeks ahead. Of course I can't. Uh, and that's that's her point of view. And if I wanted to make that point of view work, if I we really want to believe that Jordan is that flighty, is that concentrated on only seeing her parts of the world, I had to make sure the rest of the world was filled in enough for her to do so. So it, it was sort of part of making Jordan plausible. And part of it is just because I went magic in the 1920s and demons what's why wouldn't i just you know populate that full of the, the most interesting things i could <laughs> it's probably logical somewhere the other thing about the great gatsby is that you know it, it's told from nick's perspective the story is nick's story and yet he is so he's kind of a bit of a nothing character you know he's just <laughs> Well, he is. He, he doesn't have. He doesn't tell us anything about himself, really. And other than you know, a couple of comments, particularly towards the end, about how he feels about Gatsby versus how he feels about Daisy and Tom and so on. You know, the, we just it, he just feels like someone who watches life pass him by. He watches things happen, but he doesn't make any of the stuff happen himself. He is he's more a witness to his life. <laughs> than an actual player in it, um, which I've always found very interesting um, to make him, you know, the the narrative point of view character because of that, you know, his his kind of lack of really defined personality. But you know, you've cha changed the the point of view in yours to be from Jordan's perspective, but Jordan is also kind of a, a sideline character in the original book you know we we're not really given that much she sort of comes in at different points and although we actually do get a a sliver of her kind of narrative point of view when she kind of tells the backstory of of daisy and tom and so on we don't really know that much about her so i found it it, it was really interesting that you chose to then to focus on Jordan. I mean, do you think that in terms of really kind of sticking with the Gatsby story and being kind of, I don't know, 
to have that Gatsby feeling, do you think it's important to stick to a character that's more in the periphery? I mean, could you even have a really like a Gatsby-esque story if it was told even from Gatsby's perspective? I'm not sure if you could. I am sincerely hoping that someone does do Gatsby from Gatsby's perspective. I think that that would, that would be amazing. I'm not sure. I doubt that I'm the person to do it, however. Um, the reason why I picked Jordan is because I needed Jordan to make sense. Ever since I read The Great Gatsby, there's always been something weird about the way that Jordan sits in, in the novel for me. Um, she is there to move the plot forward. Uh, from a craft perspective, I think that's exactly what she's there for. Uh, someone has to, someone who is not Gatsby and not Daisy, and especially not Tom, has to tell Nick who Gatsby is. Um, but then there's this entire thing where Jordan is asked to set, um, is asked to set uh, Gatsby and Daisy up. It's this whole machination, it's this whole plot that involves her and Nick and Gatsby. And when Daisy walks in, she's utterly startled and utterly shocked that, you know, her ex, her, you know, the the one um, is there and is alive and rich and all these sorts. And I just thought, what kind of person does that? They're supposed to be friends. The implication is that they're best friends. And who sets their best friend up for something like that? What kind of person is that? So the question then becomes, okay, is Jordan just stone cold evil or are there things going on in the background that we're not privy to because we're stuck in Nick's point of view? And that was the option I chose because um, an actual, actually purely evil Jordan Baker would actually just be like a string of fun sex and drugs. And while that would be fun to read, that that, that wouldn't be the novel that I eventually wrote. Um, and with regards to Nick, which uh, you brought up something interesting and the same thing for Nick. Um, I don't think it's um, actually a spoiler to say that in my version of it, Nick is queer. And when I went back through and did my reread for Gatsby to write this novel, I went in with that filter and kind of thinking, okay, does this make sense if he's queer? And the answer is yes, because if you're queer in a repressive environment, um, one thing you do is hide. And one way of hiding is to make yourself as uninteresting as possible. And I think that really influenced my reading of Nick and uh, who he is in both the original novel and in mine. How much do you think it would have changed the novel if you'd have had Jordan the other way and had her being stone cold evil? Because <laughs> you've still got to follow the same basic plot, haven't you? But it would I would imagine it would be a completely different book. Um, I think it would be, yes. And man, I kind of want to write that... Is it considered legitimate to write your own fanfic? Because now I kind of want to write that at you. Um. Well, I was, think <laughs> I was thinking when Stephanie Meyer wrote Twilight from Bella's point <laughs> oh of view, and then from um, from Sparkly Boy, whatever he was called, um, and did, uh, yeah, had two. Of course, yeah. So maybe you could have like you know when you you finish your current very busy project, you could you know pick pick it up again and go. You know what? I'm going to write it the other way now. <laughs> the really funny part is that I'm pretty sure that I'm going to get to uh, write this other novella maybe next year or the year after, I'm not sure when, that actually is a novella from Nick's point of view. And uh, I really can't say anything about that yet, I don't think. But uh, the, 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 the working title is Don't Sleep with the Dead. So if that, if that helps anyone. That, that puts up so many interesting possibilities. Would it, I know you're not allowed to say much about it, but I'm is not, it unfortunately. sort of, is it still the same nick or would it be is it like going to be a sequel prequel side along what or is it completely brand new 
it would be a novella sequel to Chosen ah. and the Beautiful, and it is it is this Nick. <laughs> poor poor bastard. <laughs> Not giving any plot away at the end or anything, but yeah, I kind of got to the end and went, well, that's kind of bittersweet. So we wouldn't be breaking the last zipper if we didn't talk a little bit about women and agency and women's mm. roles. Um and obviously, telling, retelling The Great Gatsby from a woman's perspective um, sheds new light on the limitations that women experienced um, in this era. And you also give Daisy a bit more agency and personality. So why did you feel like the women should have had more to do? Is it something you felt was lacking in the original novel? That is something I have never decided on for myself because um, I generally feel that Fitzgerald knows what he is doing. Um in his narrative, I think he knows who his characters are. Um, and I hit this one point in when I was doing my reread, and I realized it's a point that's uh, stuck with me for a very long time. Um, Daisy, very briefly in the first part of, of The Great Gatsby, speaks about um, her twilight sleep right before, um, uh, right, right uh, when she was giving birth to her daughter, Pammy. Uh, do, do you guys know what that is? You, you can explain it for me. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. Okay, so The Twilight Sleep is was um, a brand new method of giving birth in the 1920s. It was very scientific. It was it involved using, um, among other things, a drug known as scopolamine to basically knock women out while they were giving birth. So basically, start giving birth, get a dose of this drug, you're out for your entire labor, and you wake up with a healthy baby in your arms. And that was, you know, that was the, um, that was the advertising and, and, you know, it was incredibly desirable. Why wouldn't you want to have a painless birth? And eventually what we found out was, especially as it was used more and more carelessly, um, it became this very dark procedure where women went through the procedure and they experienced the pain, but they didn't remember it. And when that happened, and the thing about, you know, memories that are suppressed in a way, there's a chance they come back. So it became this thing where suddenly women who thought that they had had, you know, very painless births started remembering that pain or remember the process where they were blindfolded and tied down for the procedure because, you know, even if they weren't set, they weren't uh, conscious, they would thrash, they would scream, um, they would react to, to um, they would react visually to things. And that's how they, that's how they gave birth. And it is just this sideways mention in the original novel, and it wasn't until I actually started looking up what a twilight birth was that I realized that's something that Daisy has gone through. That is something that Daisy has gone through in her very early 20s. And then when I started putting Daisy in the world that she lives in, you start to understand why she is the way she is, and there's some very dark things back there. Daisy has only had the right to vote for two years. Uh, Jordan probably still doesn't have it, not the Jordan allows herself to care about such things. But when it comes to giving a dimensionality to the women of the Great Gatsby, it's already there. It's just, it needs to be put into context of the world they're living in. One which is very beautiful, but also um, very, very dark as well sometimes. Wow. Well, speaking as the nominated mother of the podcast, I, uh, how do you push it's like, it, it's quite intensive and you have to concentrate quite a bit when you're giving birth. But, you know, if you're asleep or not quite, I just don't get it. I don't see how it would work in practice. 
I, I'm guessing further research is required, but also maybe that's not a rabbit hole I want to go down. <laughs> uh, it is. I mean, there there are plenty of women who went through the whole process, and it was exactly what they wanted it to be. It was just the, like I said, the the process was a it was a big secret for a long time. It started in Germany, and um, and eventually it was sort of like the process was essentially stolen, brought to the United States, and because it was so desire it was so desirable. A lot of I get the idea that a lot of people who were performing it really should not have been performing that procedure. So, um, and you know, by I think by the 40s and 50s, some extant process had survived, but it was it was just completely dismissed as being um, as being a nightmare. And I think it does actually explain a lot of what Daisy is saying about Pammy and how detached from Pammy she feels, especially if she has a dose of the memories that you know some other women did not might not have had. Yeah, that sounds very traumatic. Um, but in terms of like looking at Fitzgerald's characters, I mean, there's quite a lot of talk about how it's actually quite feminist because he was making a point of, you know, highlighting just how little agency women of the time had. That you know, Daisy, rather than being someone who is horribly manipulative or anything like that. She is someone who has had very little choice in her life and she she's stuck. She has nowhere to go. Whereas, yes, okay, everyone's out there doing drugs, being free, whatever, but that's kind of a veneer. It's not really how it is for those women. It's It's far more restrictive than the supposed loose morals suggested it was that's always a tough question for me because um you know in i really do subscribe to the author is dead and in this case literally we're safe there um but i don't know i've never quite come to terms with myself on how sympathetic fitzgerald is towards daisy herself especially when i found out that she is based on an ex of his which i feel is that's a very dangerous territory to be treading on both as a writer and as a reader um and i will also take my reading from the fact of how it comes across how daisy comes across to a modern audience i have a lot of feelings about daisy um as you can i mean i wrote the book um and i still don't know how i feel about her and i still don't know how much sympathy she deserves or how much kindness she is due. I do realize that um, part of it is the fact that we get a lot of talk about Daisy from a modern audience and how we, and how we have to see her with modern eyes and how kindly disposed we ever feel towards her. Um, all I can, what I'm willing to say though, is that for me, Daisy has always been a complete character. It was never, there was never this truncated idea that she was less of a person and she is a full person, and she's a full person who does good things, and she does terrible things. I was never a fan of Daisy, but... <laughs> <laughs> Which is all entirely fair. You know, that's that's just my uh, my bit. But I did really like that you, you did also bring up, you know, more of the, the feminist movement, but with Jordan's aunt and her friends, and they are more of the, the kind of strident out there speaking up about the issues of the time, which is i think you know apart from the you know selling souls to the devil we've got magic <laughs> we've got demon i don't know blood or like you know whatever got all these things but actually i think that the possibly the most out there thing you've got in there is this 
older aunt who's out there with like a feminist movement and and it felt stronger somehow because where yes like as you said there was space in the original novel where you can imagine these things I feel like that was very much something that you have completely come up with on your own uh yes and no uh and um Mrs. Sigourney Howard, who is Jordan's aunt, uh, she is she is from the original novel, and I had to sort of back create. I had to sort of create her backwards because uh, in the original, I have a Jordan Baker who gets to run around. She gets to be a professional golfer. She gets to spend her days where more or less wherever she pleases, and her only guardian is this aunt who sort of took charge of her after her father died, and that's that's from the original. And so I had to sort of work backwards to create who I think Aunt Justine must be. And there were a couple options, and this was absolutely the most fun one. Um, I It's one of those things where I wanted Jordan to have a relative who she loves very much and respects very much. And at the same time, can you imagine how embarrassing her aunts must be to Jordan who's you know uh, she's a fashionable young lady and she calls her aunts you know the the sort of the stereotypical ugly suffragettes and she has she's she's sort of in this she's in this very adolescent space of both admiring them and respecting them and thinking oh my god I really hope she doesn't come up to when I'm with my friends you know yes I I also like that you know the the aunt disappears with Nick you know I just that was a nice touch. I liked that. He just doesn't seem, he just doesn't seem the most responsible is all. <laughs> well, cuz Jordan's so responsible. <laughs> her aunt loves her very much. You've made Jordan Vietnamese and mm. in that, you know, you bring in yet another layer of social commentary and as as Charlotte mentioned earlier, you bring in the Manchester Act and and obviously there were a lot of racial tensions at the time as there are now um but you know you're bringing that element into it um which wasn't there before but in doing so you still end up talking about the same kinds of themes that were there in the original like wealth and class and power and race but why why did you want to bring that element in and like you know given that jordan already sort of in the, the original narrative feels a bit like an outsider in some ways you know she's kind of I don't know she's almost marginalized in the original narrative because you know as you say she's kind of there as a plot device and then sort of just doesn't really get to do much else I mean was it easier to make her into a sort of a, a socialite outsider in in the construction of her character because she was already an outsider um I think for me, uh, the fact that I get to tell this story, and one of my particular hobby horses is the fact that Asian Americans are very much a part of this country's history. Um, people have told me that you know there weren't any Vietnamese there. Vietnamese didn't show up in America until um, until after the war, and that's simply not true. Um, there have always been Vietnamese people in the United States, either as wealthy tourists or as steamship workers, especially coming from um, especially coming from Paris. Um, so part of it is the fact that that was just a thing I wanted, and and as I as I worked as I looked up things about missionaries, as I looked up about um, the history of Vietnam at the in that time period, it just it all fit, and it felt very very much of a piece to me and it felt like it, it uh, came together into something that 
made a whole that I could be very proud of having written. And part of it is the fact that um, I wanted Jordan to have a lot to look at and a lot to think about. And there's some things I think that you only think about or that are only brought to your attention if you're an outsider. And then you throw in the fact that, um, as, as her aunt Justine says, my dear, you are rich. Jordan is rich. She has a distance to a lot of those issues that someone who is actually in the middle of them, like the paper cutting troupe, uh, they don't have that the same distance that she does. The minute they know that the Manchester Act is coming down, they're gone. And Jordan herself gets to wibble a little bit. She gets to think about what it all means and what it all means to her personally. And so she has both that distance and a certain amount of insulation and safety where she can sort of take it apart in her head, which I think is a really interesting and fun thing to do for novels. Hmm. It's a bit like uh, three middle-class white women talking about feminist issues. Uh, <laughs> but we, um, we stand where we stand. That's that's uh, you know uh, that's that's the viewpoint, and in some and it really does help to have that safety, so you can talk about it, and that's very important. Yeah, we we have some privilege, but we try to recognize that and explore the issues as we do on this podcast. Oh. Mm. <laughs> but yes, I, I can see absolutely what you mean. You've got really cool magic, very original magic, uh, paper cutting magic. Um, is this an invention of your own? Did you have any inspiration for it? Actually, there's going to be this cool part in the reader's guide where I get into the history of Asian paper cutting uh, so that you can look forward to that. Uh, me, me and uh, Diana put that together and that's super exciting for me to get people to to take a look at. Um, as far as I know, the idea of uh, paper cutting magic it has a lot to do with um, dolly magic and other types of representational magic that I've read about, uh, you know, throughout human history. Because um, we all like the idea of this thing becomes another thing, and this thing represents this thing, and this thing affects this thing. And for me, it was important for Jordan to have something that was, as far as she could tell, uniquely her own until she runs into people who also have it. And uh, for Jordan, it is, um, it's one of the few things that she likes to keep private. Um, you can actually see her throughout the novel just sort of denying it and uh, refusing to do things like cut valentines, even when she's a little kid, because of that degree of discomfort. Um, I don't think that I'm a highly symbolic writer. I would love to be, but I'm not. Um, and I would say that if the magic in, um, in this series represents anything, it is some sort of degree of personhood, some sort of, de- some sort of degree of power and what you do with it. Um, if that's, if that's helpful. <laughs> I just, I really loved the paper cutting magic. I just found it. Okay. This is where I go. Oh God, I don't want to come across like it was exotic, you know, Oh, look at the pretty exotic thing, which is kind but of, you know, seen what... it before. <laughs> yeah. I've never seen it before. Um, mm-hmm. And it was just, I don't know, it had a kind of beauty to it because magic is so often this kind of completely ethereal, you can't really get a grasp on it. You don't know what happens. You know, someone says a word or waves a wand or like somehow just something happens because they're special. Um, But this kind of magic had a very tactile element to it that I I really liked because it just felt kind of... I don't know, like I could really see it. And it somehow imagining some paper, you know, or something, an object come to life 
somehow just felt more possible than just, you know, being able to say abracadabra and suddenly something happens. <laughs> yeah, there's, um, there's once again, there's that fun tactile quality that I was really hoping to get with this novel. Like, like I said, in the 1920s, you could have that. You could have things that you could touch. And also it's just, um, I think part of the fun of it is that magic is a wonderful thing and a mysterious thing. And it is wonder, it is awe. And it's also deeply commodified in in uh, The Chosen and the Beautiful. It is, it is on the exact same wavelength as electricity was in many cases. Uh, uh, Jay Gatsby's mansion is equally run on magic and electricity. And I think if I did my job right, it's the exact same kind of awe and wonder, but also real, the same quality of reality that people had for electricity at the time, which, yeah, that is still magic, still wonderful. I did like the paper cutting as a, a magic thing, but at the risk of putting forward some criticism, I kind of felt like it was the weakest part of the novel. But the reason I felt that was because I felt it was such a wonderful concept in itself and it just wasn't given room to explore within this novel. I could have read a whole novel about paper cutting. Or alternatively, I really wanted one of those lines to go after Gatsby or Tom or something. And I know that would have been completely <laughs> against the, the whole spirit of the novel. But I kind of, when I read it, I was like, well, I, I kind of want to know more about it. And then it stopped. So for me, whilst I really loved it, I kind of felt like it deserved a whole extra novel all to itself. Oh, no, that's entirely legitimate. If there was a different protagonist than Jordan, we would have followed her straight to straight to Shanghai, I believe, at the end where she's been invited. And that's going that's going to be an adventure for her. But this is Jordan and this is what she cares about. <laughs> believe me, I don't I don't blame you. There was a lot of research into this novel that Jordan did not care about as a character at all. That's really interesting. I know we're kind of like wrapping up here, but it just gave me a, you know, an idea. It's like did did you feel constrained by that? Did you did you ever feel irritated? that you just didn't have that that freedom. I suppose this comes back to reinterpretation, doesn't it? Uh, no, nah, not really. I mean, I'm, I'm going to write other novels. It might come up then. I'm, uh, it, it's not one of those... Um, I'm not someone who's terribly worried about ideas. They just show up when they show up. And, I'll, and if I can't do something cool this time, I'll do something cool next time. Um, the big fun of writing The Chosen and the Beautiful was being in Jordan Baker's head. Jordan is one of those characters who has nothing to do with me i don't think it's it was um i had to create her more or less from whole cloth and there were lots of times when i was writing where i stared at what i'd written and i'm like no that's not actually what she would do because and, and you know you know <laughs> when i was being mean about it, i'm like yes that makes too much sense um, but i loved her and I, I still love her and this is i was trying to stay as close as i could to the world that she would be seeing and the world that she would actually talk about there's a lot that jordan doesn't talk about in the um in the chosen and the beautiful she doesn't like uh, i think the most obvious example is how very sick her aunt is uh especially during the second half of the book and that is not something that she cares to dwell on so she just happens to mention sometimes when she's at the hospital or they had to bring in a nurse but that's not something that, that is something that is very important to jordan both on a subconscious and a conscious level and it's not something that she cares to share much like uh nick in his own turn there's a lot that nick is not telling us so i think it does eventually end up with nick feeling sort of boring but i also think there's stuff there that even in the original we can dig at so no i i really like the idea of you know it's it's kind of that you know, people love talking about the unreliable narrator and all that. And 
you know, sometimes first person narrations are always going to be unreliable. And I think it's, you're right in that kind of part of the story is the stuff that you're not told. And the fact that Jordan isn't telling us or isn't dwelling on this or isn't, you know, the spending that time on her aunt or the, the stress of that, then that in itself is very telling. Mm. Awesome. Well, we, we, we just have gone through our questions. <laughs> if that hasn't convinced like anyone to actually go out and read The Chosen and the Beautiful, I mean, like, I don't know what will convince them. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think we covered everything that was just pertinent to the book. Uh, but thank you so much for talking to us. This has been awesome. Oh, it's been great. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, no, it is absolutely our pleasure. We are really, really big fans. Um, we are. Stuff is great. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond, and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.